So if you have your Bibles, we're going to be in the book of Luke. Surprise, surprise, right? Luke chapter 8. If you don't know me, my name's Gabe. We're super glad that you're here. Um, If this is your first time or you want more information about the church or have any prayer requests or anything like that, um, there should be a welcome card somewhere on your table. Um, Look something similar or exactly to this. Um, Grab grab this, take a second, fill it out. I will not be offended if you're writing on this during the sermon. We want you to write on this. So take some time, fill it out, and that way we can have a little bit more information about you. Uh, If you want us to, that sounds really creepy. Um, That way we can show up at your house and say, hey man, you hadn't tithed in a while, what's up? No, we would never do that. Um, tonight is a cool night, man. We'll talk a lot about it after the sermon, uh, but I was laying down about, I don't know, 1.30, 2 o'clock, kind of reading over my sermon, started getting a little dozy, kind of took a nap, and I thought, next week I can take a nap. For the first time since we started the church, I can take an afternoon nap next week, which is awesome, uh, because this is it. This is the final evening gathering um, of the Branch Church. We were moving to Sunday morning starting next week in the gym. And like I said, we'll talk a lot about that at the end, um, but this is exciting. This is it. Like next week, we can watch the Masters. We can hang out um, because we'll be at Sunday mornings, and all that the Lord has done to get us to that point is pretty cool. Um, are you guys excited? Yeah. I know the college students are like, no, stink, stinks, man. Uh, it's, a, it's a good thing. I'm sorry. You can get up. Get over it. Um, so Luke chapter 8 is where we're going to be, and um, the joy of teaching through a book of the Bible is also a curse as well, um, because it's the Bible. There's so much stinking information in here um, that like, it's impossible to go through everything. So as much as we're trying to stay true to the expository method of going line by line, um, we're also teaching through what's called narratives, basically stories. Um, and so in the story, there's a bunch of points that we can get to. Um, so tonight we're going to cover a large chunk, uh, but we're only going to talk about a couple verses. So Luke eight twenty six through 39 is where we're going to land. If you don't have a Bible, there's a couple on the table. Um, we want you to have that. Uh, this is not my words. This is not something we're creating. We're not trying to brainwash you or manipulate you. Um, you're actually part of a movement that's global. Um, there are people all across the world reading the same story scripture, the same text that we're reading tonight, um, and it's changing their life just like it's changing ours. Um, So we've kind of called this series as we're going through Luke uh, Luke, a meal with Jesus, uh, because there's a couple scholars that say if you read through the book of Luke, Jesus is either at a meal, going to a meal, coming from a meal. I mean, we know a lot of us, uh, like, where's the first spot you're going to take a date? A, A meal, right? Unless you're that guy. Don't be that guy. Um, but if you're not that guy, you take a girl to, uh, on a nice date, you take her to a nice restaurant, because a lot of stuff, a lot of good conversation happens around a meal. So what we're trying to do, basically, as we go through Luke, is figure out who is Jesus really. Uh, we live in the South, we live in the Bible Belt, everyone has kind of a basic idea of who Jesus is. You're, you could walk around the square, you could take uh, surveys, everyone's going to give you something. Um, it kind of blows my mind, there's parts of the globe that, that have no idea. Who's Jesus? You're talking about that guy that lives over behind us? Like, no, man, that's, that's not who I'm talking about. Do you know who Jesus is? Uh, no, if you're not talking about that dude, I have no clue. Um, so for us, we have this preconceived notion of Jesus, but we want to let the text read us, not us read the text, and make sure we truly understand who Jesus is. Um, and so tonight we're picking up on a huge narrative um, where Jesus kind of models this idea of faith. So chapter 8, there's a bunch of stories and illustrations uh, about faith and and people that have faith, people that don't have faith. 
And so we're trying to understand, again, faith is this thing. It's a pretty, might be on your wall at your parents' house. Like it's just a cool word um, that the church needs to really take and, and redeem for what it means biblically. And so this idea that Jesus would have faith just kind of starts to blow your mind. How is, if Jesus is God and God is Jesus, then how does Jesus have faith? And so we, we can even fast forward to Jesus praying in the garden um, the night before his death. And he's saying if there's any other way, if there's anything else you can do, God, take this away from me, uh, but if not, your will be done. That is faith. We talked about last week, faith being a confidence, an overwhelming confidence. And so tonight we're going to look at maybe an example where Jesus has faith and the implications of that. Um, so Luke 8, 26 through 39, we'll just kind of dive into it. It's kind of, like I said, it's a little longer, so hold tight, spider monkey, and we'll get there. Yes, I just quoted Twilight. No big deal. Did anyone catch that or did I just throw myself under the bus? All right. It's a good movie. Don't hate. Verse 26. Then they sailed to the country of the, and I've been practicing this all week because I'm, Jojo, what is this? Dr. Thomas. I'm going to call you. (laughs) Yeah, it's Garrisons, right? Like you don't want to be the pastor that doesn't know how to pronounce something. Garrisons, only because I listened to the Bible app over and over and over again to make sure I got that right. Then they sailed to the country of the Garrisons, which is opposite of Galilee. Verse 27, when Jesus had stepped out on the land, there he met a man from the city who had demons. For a long time he had worn no clothes and had not lived in a house, but among the tombs. Verse 28, When he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell down before him and said with a loud voice, What have you do to excuse me, what have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I beg you, do not torment me. For he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of him. For many of a time it had seized him. He was kept under guard and bound with chains and shackles. But he would break the bonds and be driven by the demon into the desert. Verse thirty, Jesus said, Jesus then asked him, what is your name? And he said, Legion, for many demons had entered him. And they begged him not to command them to depart into the abyss. Verse 32, now a large herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him to let them enter these. So he gave them, he being Jesus, gave them permission. Then the demons came out of the man, entered the pigs, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake where they were drowned. Verse 34, When the herdsmen saw what had happened, they fled and told it in the city in the country. The people went out to see what had happened, and they came to Jesus and found the man from whom the demons had gone, sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed, and it was in his right mind. And they were afraid. Verse 36. And those who had seen it told them how the demon-possessed man had been healed. Then all the people of the surrounding country of the Gerasenes asked him to depart from them. For they were seized with great fear. So he got into the boat and returned. Verse 38, the man from whom the demons had gone begged that he might stay with him. But Jesus sent him away saying, return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. And he went away proclaiming throughout the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. Now, if this is one of your first times in church, this story probably just blew your mind and made you a little weary about the whole idea of church. Uh, so we've got, last week we talked about Jesus 
him and his disciples got on the boat. We're going across the Sea of Galilee. Um, sea of Galilee, 600 feet below sea level. The storm came in. They're like crazy. Um, they were, the, the disciples were freaking out, losing their mind. Went to him and said, hey, Jesus, do you not care that we're dying? Do you not care that we're literally perishing away? Uh, aren't you going to do something about this? So he gets up and the, the Greek word rebukes, talking about uh, demons. So he rebukes the wind, rebukes the storm, um, implying that there was more happening than just the storm. Um, that there was a satanic attack taking place, um, rebukes it. Then he turns to the disciples and says, hey, man, like, where's your faith? So we spent a lot of time talking last week how there's a huge difference between knowledge and faith. The disciples had knowledge that Jesus could fix the storm, but they didn't have faith that he was going to. And how a lot of us, we, especially if we've grown up in the Bible Belt, we've grown up in the church, that explains us. We have this idea, this knowledge that Jesus can, that's the, because we pray every time something bad happens, Right? But do we actually have the faith that he's going to come through with it? Or do most of our prayers look like, God, where are you? You could have fixed this, but you didn't. Um, so that's the difference between knowledge and faith. And so they're going across, and they get to the other side where the story starts of the Sea of Galilee. Um, Jesus was intentional about getting over there, and we'll see why in a second. Um, gets there, as soon as they land, this dude comes running at them. Have you guys ever seen uh, a naked guy that's been living on the tomb for a while? You ever seen that guy? No, right, it'd be a little weird. Like, driving down, going to the baseball game, this dude comes running down the hill, like, uh, that I would probably shoot him. Just anyone else, right? Like, the naked guy runs at me from a tomb. Yeah, I'm, I'm pulling out my LC9 and taking care of business, driving down the road, and it's it. Uh, don't judge me. Anyone else? All right. Cool. I'm, I'm the only redneck here with a gun, I guess. So, <clears throat> anyways, guy comes running down. This awkward situation begins to take place um, because the disciples' minds were blown. They're probably just sitting there in the boat going, what's happening? A uh, demon-possessed man comes running down. And this is where the scene picks up. So there's a couple points where uh, I just want to stop and for us to look at um, this idea of faith, of this confidence, that what did Jesus' faith look like? Uh, he was so confident in who God is and his mission on earth uh, what did it actually flesh itself out to? So the first point I want to say, um, his faith made him intentional. Um, he went to the Gerasenes on purpose. And you can see that in verse 22 and in verse 26, um, that he intentionally went across the Sea of Galilee uh, to this community, to this town. It wasn't accidental. It wasn't like, hey, let's just hop in a boat and take a little cruise, and uh, we'll drink some wine and, and get some caviar, and wherever we land, we land. It wasn't one of those kind of trips. It was an intentional a trip because confidence makes you intentional, right? If you're confident in something, it's going to make you intentional. One of my favorite things for being a youth pastor was watching these confident eighth graders um, go, when we go to beach camp or retreats or something, and they're like, hey, man, I'm going to go pick up that girl over there. And I would agon on all, yeah, go get it, dude. Go get it. You got it, man. Go tell her, hey, go get her number. You got this. So they would act all confident, and like if the girl was sitting in this chair, you know, they would have the approach where they've got the little swag going on, and as soon as they get to the chair, she looks up, they're like, oh, wait, I'm going over here. And you like walk into the girl's bathroom or something because they're so, so we have this idea that confidence will make us intentional, um, but if we're not actually intentional, it shows us the lack of confidence. Um, I'll say it this way. If you had a lottery ticket in your pocket right now, would you intentionally do something with it or not? If it was the winning lottery ticket, your lottery ticket won you $38 million. Are you just going to sit on that? No, right? You're going to be intentional about going to find whoever you need to find to get your $38 million. And after taxes and fees and all that, about 10. Who cares? It's still 10 million, right? I'm taking it. Or maybe this, if you had the cure for cancer, 
How about that? If you had the cure for Alzheimer's, some disease, if you were that confident that that was the cure, would you be intentional or unintentional about that? Would you just sit on it and go, no, I'm good. I, 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 I think this might be it. No, then that's not confidence. That's self-doubt. But if you're fully confident, even if you look like a fool, you're going to be intentional about your decisions. And so we see this in Jesus' life. Um, he's fully intentional that he has the truth in him, that he has eternal life in him. And so he's going to make the intentional uh, trip across the Sea of Galilee to spread the gospel. And we'll get to that word in a second. Another thing that we see, that his faith was stronger than the cultural status quo. Um, there's a couple subliminal things happening here that we have to address. Uh, because they went to the country of the Gerasenes, which is opposite of Galilee. So this is a Jew going where Jews don't go, right? So this is a Jew taking his Jewish disciples into a land of non-Jews, into a land that would make them unclean. They were purposely going into a place that their kind of people didn't go to. Now, we wouldn't uh, maybe not admit it here, but isn't there places where church people don't go to? Aren't there people that church people don't hang out with? Right? And Jesus is going, no, that's ridiculous. That might be the status quo of the time, but those people need me. They need the gospel. And I'm so confident in this message that I'm going over there. Um, a more pertinent point of that, um, he walked straight to the demon-possessed man. I feel like I'm kind of manly, but like I said, I would have shot that guy, got back on the boat, and gone. But his message was so sure, he was so confident in his message that he walked straight to this guy. Naked, all like, had chains coming from him because he kept breaking them. He wasn't afraid. He was so confident in that message, he walked straight to them. And another clue we pick out in a little bit, was where did he cast the demons into? Pigs, right? Wasn't that unclean for Jews? So he's walking around in a pig pasture where Jews don't go into. That's the unclean, that's not holy for them. So they, he was in a pig pasture, literally like that's, no Jew would go there, no Jew would deal with that man, and no Jew would intentionally go to the garrison people. But Jesus did. One of the stories early on in my ministry that just blew my mind. There's a pastor out in Seattle, was getting to meet his neighbors and all this kind of stuff. And uh, one of his neighbors was uh, homosexual. And so he kept, hey, like, you need to come to church. You need to come to church. You need to come hang out with me. Like, my friends are cool. Trust me. Like, we're not the normal church people. You need to come hang out with me. And so uh, at one point, the, his neighbor said, listen, um, you expect me to go where your people are, but your people never come to where I'm at. So the pastor's like, checkmate. You got me. Where do you want to go tonight? And the guy was like, well, come with me to this gay bar. Okay, I'm going. Um, so a pastor walks into this gay bar, he's hanging out with all these guys, getting to know them, everything's good. Um, his friend disappears up into this upper room for a little while, comes back down and says, hey, uh, you, should, you should come up to this upper room with me. Now, already totally out of his comfort zone, like never been in a gay bar in his life, this pastor, you, you want me to go where? Like, what? <laughs> Is this not okay? Can I not just hang out here for a little while? Goes up, there's this big, long board meeting table, a um, bunch of guys sitting around. And, um, so they start introducing themselves. And what they were doing is they were planning a gay rodeo. And so they start introducing themselves, going around the table. And um, so it gets to his, and he says, hey, you know, my name's Mark. Uh, and everyone's saying their name and what they did for a living. So I came in, my name's Mark, and I'm a pastor. 
everyone started dying. I mean, you could just imagine, like, okay, that's funny. Like, what do you really do? He's like, no, seriously, like, my name's Mark, and, and I'm a pastor. Blew their minds. Helped them play in this rodeo. I don't, I don't really, he didn't go on in the book of how much, Radical Reformation is the name of the book, how much he really in, got involved with that. But that's totally breaking status quo of the day, Right? Like, it blew everyone's mind. Do you think that the Gerasenes people, their minds were blown because Jews were coming over to hang out with them? I mean, later on they say, like, you've got to go, Jesus, get out of here. Part of it was because they weren't supposed to be there in the first place. But Jesus broke the status quo of the day and said, no, I'm, I'm going over there. There's people over there that need the gospel. I'm going and so we can, we can maybe hash this out later, or even more specifically within our missional communities, but, but what is the pocket, what are the group of people that, that if we pursued, if we went after, that we as a church would be breaking status quo? The church doesn't associate with them, the church doesn't need to deal with them, they don't need to hang out with those kind of people. And hear me from the pastor, hang out with those people. If Jesus was accused of being a glutton and a drunkard, uh, maybe we should take his cue. Maybe we should start breaking some of these. I'm not telling you to be a glutton or a drunkard. Don't hear me say that, because Jesus wasn't. But he picked up the stipulations of those kind of people because that's who he hung out with. So his faith was so confident that that's what he did. But here's maybe just kind of as we start to understand the real relationship, um, his faith, his confidence in who God is and what God wanted to accomplish through him uh, broke his heart for that man. Now I've joked around uh, that I would have shot the guy, and, and maybe there's some truth in that. I don't know. I've never been in that situation. Um, Nekadoo, tombstones coming out. Like, yeah, it might actually happen. But his faith, his overwhelming confidence in who God is broke his heart and forced him to love this man. Forced him just to slow things down, to actually have a general conversation, uh, a genuine conversation that, that he loved him. Now, here's kind of where, where the page starts to turn a little bit for us. Um, one of the hardest things that I have to do, I think, as a pastor is this. Um, there's maybe half, maybe 60, maybe 70. I don't know the demographics. Um, there's a large majority, I'll say more majority than minority, majority of you guys um, that understand a huge truth. Uh, Ephesians 2, flip over to Ephesians 2 if you, if you have a Bible. Ephesians 2 will help us underline this truth. His faith helped him to love this man because faith could help him see that he was God's child, not just because of his current circumstance. And I'm just being candid. I mean, we, can, we could hash this out later, but that's not me, man. Like, I write off people constantly. Anyone else? I get a basic impression, there's no hope for you, bye. Right? There's few of you, you weirdos, that like see the heart of people. Uh, one of the reasons I've got Matthew Thomas on our team is he is one of those weirdos. He uh, is attracted to those people. He can see the heart behind people where I would have like, I, honestly, I would have probably kicked half of you guys out of the church already if it wasn't for Matthew, just being real, because like he can see like, no, no, there's progress happening. This person actually wants to grow. I would have one conversation when you go, all right, see ya. Like you're, you're not a good fit. But Matthew is the one that's helped me settle down a little bit and actually see the heart behind people uh, because of his faith in what he thinks God is trying to accomplish. So Ephesians 2 is kind of the framework for this, one through three. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in, once, in which you once walked following the course of the world, 
following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now in work at the sons of disobedience, among whom we all, if you underline or you need to underline, all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body into the mind. And we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So here's where we have to get to, maybe we can start flipping this on its head a little bit. Um, we were all once children of wrath. We were all once caught up in our sin, and there's nothing we can do about it. When we read these stories, we naturally just kind of have um, the hero mentality of like, that's what Jesus did. I need to do what Jesus did. But we have to stop first and realize, like, we're that man. Don't put yourself in Jesus' shoes yet, church. Make sure that we understand that we were that man. If you are a believer, we were that man. If you're not yet a believer, I'm grateful that you're here. You are that man. Granted, we might not be running around naked and hanging out in tombs, but we are sinful and we are broken. And Ephesians 2 would tell us that that's who we were. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. We are that man. And we can't go any farther in this story till we stop and understand that. And this is the hard part of my job because the majority of you, 60, 70% understand that truth. You get it, like you've had enough life, you've had enough experience to go, man, like I've tried to fix this thing and I just can't. Like I know I have an anger issue and I've tried to and I just can't. I know that I struggle with this, with pornography, with whatever, I've tried to fix it and I just can't. I've tried to fix this situation and I just can't. So what you're coming in here, why you know that you need the gospel is you know you need hope. You know you need help. But there's another majority of us, or minority in us, that don't quite realize that yet. That you got all your participation trophies growing up, and you've been coddled, and you're such a good kid, and you've memorized scripture, and you know all this sort of stuff. So you just kind of walk around with a little bit of swag on you because you think that you have what it takes to be a good Christian. So you hear this, and you're probably arguing with me in your head right now going like, but you don't know me. I'm not that man. I would really press in and say, why do you think that? Because there's more wickedness growing in that thought than the ones that are able to self-confess that I am that man. So what is going on in our hearts that we think that we're better than Jesus? Maybe we need to climb down off the cross and let Jesus get up there for us because that's not who you are. So I can just rail and rail, and I can prove to you your sin. We talk about it all the time. If I put a helmet on you that put every thought you've ever had on the screen, you would not want to stay in this room. So you can pretend like we've got our stuff together, and I can rail and rail and rail on all this. And the uh, majority of you guys are going, I know, I know, I know. Like, I know I'm broken. I know I need help. I know I need hope. But I have to rail on the other minority because they don't quite get it yet. We start to understand faith when we start to understand grace, and we start to understand grace when we understand we were that man. Grace and faith did not become sweet to us until we understand our wretchedness before that. So before we can move on and really understand why Jesus sailed across that sea, church, we have to come to this conclusion that we were that man, that we might right now in this moment be that man. That if we've not publicly confessed Christ, we are that man. And sure, we can cover it up and we can look pretty and we can have everything figured out and you can walk around with a Bible and you can be in 12 Bible studies. None of that means nothing. If you don't understand the depravity of your sin, then Jesus is not sweet. So now that we kind of understand that, uh, we can start to understand what Jesus was doing. 
that Jesus came after us. So if we look again in that story, Jesus was intentional about going across the Sea of Galilee. Um, while I'm talking, flip over to Galatians 4. You're really close. Just flip over to Galatians 4. So when we always use this word, Carlton called me out on it probably two or three weeks ago. He said, man, like you guys use the, the word gospel about 17 times or 27 or something. He said, do you think the church actually knows what that word means? I'm like, yeah, okay, fair enough. So this perfectly illustrates for us what the gospel is. That Jesus got in a boat, he went through a storm for you and for me. That Jesus pursued after us. That we were in our brokenness, that we were in our sin, and we had no idea which way was up. And Jesus came to us. There's nothing we can do to come to him. Jesus came to us. Galatians chapter 4 will help kind of illustrate this a little bit. Galatians 4, picking up in verse 4. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent, again, underlined, sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoptions as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent, again, underlined, sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. So this idea, this idea of adoption is what God has done for us. And last year, we preached through the book of Galatians. Um, I use this illustration often about going by a puppy store, right? Um, you go by, there's one in coming that my family will, I will go all the way around so we don't have to go by the front of the store so the kids see all the cats and dogs and jumping in the window and, oh, can we get one? Can we save one? Uh, no, never. I will, no, we're not getting another dog. That's it. So we don't even go around those stores. But let me just ask you, say we did go in there, um, what can one of those do, dogs do to be adopted? I mean, like, you know, some of those dogs can jump on their back feet and look all cute, and one of them is just over there peeing in the corner the whole time. Like, what do those dogs actually do to be adopted? Nothing. They can try to look cute, but maybe I like dogs that pee in corners. So I'm going to skip over all the cute ones and go to get that one, Right? Those dogs can literally do nothing to be adopted. Without someone walking in the door to rescue them, they can't do anything. So we talk this idea of adoption that Galatians brings forth to us. Um, there's kind of this uh, debate among theologians between uh, Martin Luther, who this is coming up on the 500th uh, year of the Reformation. Um, he had this big thing that justification, that God making us right, was the greatest privilege of the believer. That justification by God looking at our sins and forgiving us. Um, but another guy, another theologian, R.C. Sproul, would say, no, I see what Luther's saying. That, yeah, justification is a huge deal, um, but adoption is bigger. Because justification, and we've all done this. I think I've shared this story before. I was a youth pastor, intern youth pastor, and um, I had a lady back into my truck, but at the time I didn't really care about my truck. It was nothing special. Um, so it was like, yeah, you're good, but like, get out of here. I'm not going to call the police, but I am frustrated with you for backing in, so um, we're good. I'm not going to press charges, but I don't really want to talk to you, so bye. Have a good day. Just get out of here. So that would kind of be the idea of justification, that God could forgive us of our sins, but say, okay, you're good. I've forgiven you. Now go leave me alone. So what Sproul would argue is adoption is higher because, yes, God has justified us. God has forgiven us, but he's also brought us into the family. 
He's also said, no, no, like, don't get out of here. Come closer. Come to me. Come spend time with me. Let me be your Abba Father. Let me be your provider. Let me take care of you so I don't count your sins against you anymore, but I also love you like a father. So adoption is this higher privilege that we get to walk into. Justification would be enough. Adoption is just the icing on the cake. So when we start to look at what Jesus did, the power that it takes for him to come after us is huge. That the faith that he had in God and the purpose and the confidence that Jesus was walking in on his time or during his three to four years of ministry on earth, he came after us and that ministry hasn't stopped. So when we start to see rightly the themes of this story, um, that Jesus came after the man and we are the man, things start to change for us a little bit. We don't have to try to pretend like we've got our stuff together because Jesus pursued us. I mean, we could talk about like, oh, well, I mean, I think I'm basically a good kid. Like, I'm a, I'm a good adult. I'm a, I'm a decent father. I think 51%, like, that's good enough, right? Like, that'll get me into heaven. Uh, one, that's not Christianity. You're following another religion. And two, even uh, Isaiah would say, even your most righteous acts are filthy rags. So what are you actually counting? What are you, like, what are you storing up? Because those are filthy rags. And you should go home and Google what that really means right? So this is the beauty of what we call the gospel, that we were that man dead in our sins, and there's nothing we can do about it, and Jesus came and pursued us and loved us and made a way for us when there was no way. So one more last flip, I'm sorry, go back to Luke 8, because now that we have this framework, I want us, for us to see what a life of faith really looks like, when Jesus really changes our heart, when salvation really comes, what does it actually look like for us? Pick it up, verse 35. Then people went to see what had happened, and they came to Jesus and found the man whom the demons had gone, sitting at the feet of Jesus clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. Sitting at the feet of Jesus. So when we understand that there's nothing we can do to save ourselves, when we understand that we are lost, and we understand Ephesians 2, that we, we, there's nothing we can do, that we are dead in our sins and trespasses. Just, I'll, I'll say it one more time. Um, what does a dead man do? nothing. Just do me a favor when you die. Um, just say, I want to live again. And if you come back, come find me because that will change my whole view of scripture. Can a dead man choose life? No. So we were dead in our sins and our trespasses until someone came to rescue us. Someone came to rescue us. And when we are rescued, the only response is to sit at the feet of Jesus and worship him for how good he is. So there's so much happening under this umbrella of what the gospel is. But the most important thing I want us to see is that Jesus came to get us. That Jesus came to get us. He came for this demon-possessed man, and he's come for us. Did the demon-possessed man have to do anything to get ready for Jesus' approach? Did he see Jesus coming and go, oh, crap, guys, i got to get a shower. Uh, I'll be back in five. Hold Jesus on the boat. Don't let him get off the boat till I come back. No. 
He came, he ran to him. Now granted, there's so much with this demonic possession stuff that we just don't have time to get into. It'd probably terrify you just honestly, so maybe you're, maybe you're good. No, so Jesus came to get us. So, uh, I almost didn't get to this part, but we'll just talk about it a little bit. This is not the main point of the sermon by no means. Uh, so what does that look like for us then? So what does that look like for us? If we understand that Jesus came to save us, that we were that man, that we were dead in our sin, that we were dead in our trespasses, there's nothing we could do to choose death to life. There's nothing we can do to earn God's favor other than God coming in through Jesus and rescuing us from the life we were in. Now what for us? Now what for us? What does that look like? Did I say we were done flipping? My bad. One more. You don't have to flip. Second Corinthians. This will be the last flip, I promise. Second Corinthians 5. And again, yes, we could have it up on the screen and it could be more convenient, but my hope is that you see this, that you underline this, that you wrestle with this text throughout the week. That if, like I said, if you don't have a Bible, man, take one of these with you, underline the text that we were in, write this down so you can actually study it on your own. This is not enough. I hope you guys know this. This is not enough to fuel your spiritual growth ever. If this is all we're depending on, man, we're going to be spiritual anorexics. It's not going to work well for us. So my hope is that we'd wrestle through some of this text on our own. 2 Corinthians 5, picking it up in verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. The death, the brokenness, the sin, all of that has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All of this is from God. What? All of this is from God. Nothing was from you who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting the message, uh, trusting us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors of Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore on your behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Verse 21, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. A lot there we don't have time for. Here's what I want us to understand, though. Because of what Christ has done for us, now he has given us the message of reconciliation. Um, you don't have to flip back, uh, but if you want to, uh, flip back to see the response of the man. Uh, verse 38, the man with whom the demons had gone begged that he might go with him, but Jesus sent him away saying, return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. So once salvation has come for us, once we fully understand who we were before Christ and that there was no way that we could clean ourselves up enough to earn our way back to Christ, and once we understand that Christ has come for us, that he has pursued us, that he has seeked after us, and we sit and worship at the feet of Jesus, the only response is to talk about how good he is. What 2 Corinthians is laying out is um, just how God has reconciled us to himself through Christ, uh, now it's our turn. Now we get to go share the message of reconciliation. That if you confess that Jesus is king, then man, like you, that's it. That is the beauty of the gospel. You have been reconciled and we have that message inside of us. Um, there's a book that I've just kind of been working through slowly um, ab about Jim Elliot. Has anyone ever heard of Jim Elliot? 
Okay, uh, missionary, grew up uh, in the States and just had this burning fire. The book, ha- it's called The Shadows of the Almighty. So basically his wife took all of the, his journal entries and put them together. Um, so it just tracks his life from high school all the way till his death. And he actually died in Ecuador um, by the people that he was going to share Jesus with. So you can see his entire life, he was burning Everywhere he went, if he was stuck in the States, he was sharing the gospel in the States, but his desire was always to go to an unreached people group, always to go share the gospel with them. Um, but I loved his attitude, the chapters I was reading this week, um, because when he would go here, when he would go here to meet with these people, it wasn't like you could do a Skype interview. It's just funny to listen. Like He would go to Chicago for a meeting from uh, Seattle. Like That's funny. Like Uvu pops up, and like we can have that. But it's just, anyways. I thought that was funny. I guess you didn't. Um, so going over to meet with all these people. And while he was there, he's basically was, if I'm trapped in this place, I'm telling people about Jesus everywhere. My desire is to go here. But if I'm trapped here, uh, might as well share the gospel while I'm here. His intent to share the gospel was nothing but extraordinary to me. Because his faith in the gospel was so strong. His confidence of who God is and what he's done for him was so strong. So here's maybe a couple things as we start to land the plane. What does this start to look like for us? Uh, remember that Jesus went to unpopular places on purpose. So Jesus got in a boat and went across the sea to a place that he wasn't supposed to go, but he did it on purpose. So what would that look like for us? And I would even argue, um, maybe you're not that confident in the gospel. Still go. Go. Don't go by yourself. Jesus didn't go by himself. But just go into that world. Maybe for you, like, you've you've never gone into a bar after 8 o'clock unless it has food. Like, that was the greatest sin, was we were really hungry and we couldn't find anywhere to eat and there was this bar, but but we didn't actually, like, we didn't, all the beer signs we never looked at. We just kind of kept our heads down and just ate our burger and left. Like, maybe that was your great rebellion. Like, just go into that place. Who, what is a people group that maybe you just drive into their neighborhood? Just say, hey, my name's Gabe, what's yours? Because I know the excuse for me and for most of us is like, I really don't know how to share the gospel. That makes me a little uncomfortable. Okay, well then just step on, just get into their world. Jesus was intentional about going to an unreached people group, to a non-Jew people group. Uh, what would it look like for us to do that? Remember that Jesus went to people that society didn't know what to do with. Um, Remember that he went because of his love for that man. Uh, But here's maybe, especially some of the college students, here's one thing I really need you to hear. Uh, Remember that he told that man to stay. That's a huge thing for us because I felt it in college. I've talked to a bunch of college kids. There's always this like, once I graduate, then I can go here. And once I, once I get to this point, then I can actively go share the gospel with people. Once I get out of the stinking town of Dahlonega, then my ministry will really start. But that's not what Jesus said to this man. He said, no, you stay here and tell everyone what Jesus has done for you. You stay here and tell everyone how good God is. So I would argue with you, um, and it was the same thing when I used to be a youth pastor, the same thing. If you can't share the gospel overseas, I'm not going to, or I'm in your own neighborhood, why would I take you overseas to do it? If we can't love on the people in our dorms and in our neighborhoods and around us, then why do we think that we're going to magically do it when we go somewhere else? That Jesus told that man to stay. 
So church, what if Jesus is asking us to stay here? Like, I hope you realize that us moving to Sunday mornings is way bigger than just moving to Sunday mornings. That we're doing what we can to reach the gospel with those around us here. That we're planning on staying. That we're here for the long haul. Now, yes, do we want to plant churches on every college campus in Georgia? Yes. And are we going to send teams as fast as we can grow them up? Yes. But the church in Nalanaga will always be here. So what does it look like for us? And, and well, let, me, let me put a break. Let me just put a huge break. Uh, some of us can have this conversation, and I'm not trying to be mean, and I know it's like, you can't talk to people that way. Some of us are ready to have this conversation. What does it look like? What neighborhoods do we need to go into? I think the majority of us probably need to stop and realize the beauty of the gospel. I don't want to overload you with to-dos and tasks, and that would come across as legalistic when you don't truly sit under the weight of the gospel. Do you realize that you were that man? Do you realize that you are that man? Do you realize the sin and the brokenness that comes around you constantly? Do you realize that there's things you just can't fix and things that you cannot change? And if that's the case, do you realize that Jesus got on a boat, came across the sea for you? That he has pursued you because of his love for you. He has come after you. C.S. Lewis would call it the Holy Ghost towns. He, they're not stopping. They're going to pursue you and pursue you and pursue you. And it's not an empty pursuit. It's not just justification. It's not salvation. Now I'm going to leave you alone. It's salvation. Now welcome to the family. I'm going to bring you in. Are you still going to fail? Yes. Can I get an amen from any Christian in here? Yes. Are we still going to fall short? Yes. Does God see us fall short? No. That is the beauty of what we're about to celebrate is communion. See, when we sin, we literally are taking his bread, which is the body, and the juice, which is his blood, and that's all that Christ or God sees is Christ. And that's all that he sees is his perfect son paying the penalty for us. So does he see our brokenness? No, he sees Christ's penalty. Does he see our disparity and our sin? No, he sees Jesus on the cross for you and for me. That is the beauty of the gospel. And when we start to understand that message, when it starts to group, uh, get deep into our heart, when we understand the gospel, then the obvious response is, okay, then where are we going to go? Then who are we going to tell? But again, I don't want to push that until you truly understand the gospel. Is there so much more to this story? Yes. But the most important part was Jesus getting on that boat and going across the sea for that man. If you don't hear anything else, hear me say, Jesus got on that boat, sealed across the sea for you. And that's what we celebrate through communion. So I'm going to pray for us, and then uh, like every gathering, communion's going to be open. But here's what it means tonight, that we're, Second Corinthians, a new creation. That the old has gone, that the new has come because of what Christ has done on the cross. Because of his body that was broken and the blood that was spilled out for us, we have a new creation we have a new body we have a new life which is in christ jesus that is the beauty of the gospel so let me pray uh, father thank you jesus there's there's so many things we should thank you for uh, god that you were intentional about coming after that man means you're intentional about coming after us that you weren't afraid of that man's sin 
but you walked straight to him, means that you're not afraid of our sin either. God, that you healed that man, that you took every demon out of him, every brokenness out of him, was a foreshadowing of what you're going to do for us on the cross. Father, that love is it's unexplainable for us. It's easy for us to love those that we like. But to consider pursuing and loving and dying for those that we don't is just not in our framework. God, because we had sin. Romans would say that, that all the sin that's in us, that we were born sinners because of our father Adam. That we had brokenness in us, that we were enemies of you because of the sin that was in us. That you're so perfect and you're so holy that you couldn't have anything to do with sin. And God, you would be good and righteous and just to leave us alone and let us, let this world just deteriorate. But God, because you're, you're holy and you can, but the fact that you didn't, the fact that you sent Jesus to the earth to take our penalty for us, to make us holy. God, why? Your love for us. God, you love us. You pursued us. You came after us. So God, tonight as we celebrate communion, would we just remember that? Would we celebrate that? That we've never been loved like this before. And we'll never be loved like this again. That we are your sons and daughters adopted into your family, not because of anything we've done or anything we will ever do, Father, but only because of how good of a father that you are. Jesus, thank you. Thank you, thank you. Thank you for giving us the message that is the gospel. This good news that even in our sin and even in our brokenness, you still pursue and you still love. That you never give up on us. So church, as we take communion tonight, let us remember that fact. If there's some kind of pressure that we're walking under, or if we feel like God doesn't love us because blank, 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 because if we feel like I've got to get this area of my life really taken care of before God will love me and approve of me, would you confess that as you're taking communion? Would you remember the words of Jesus Christ saying, it is finished, all of your past sin, all of your future sin, all of your present sin, it is finished, it is atoned, it is taken care of. And we understand Jesus as our Father, God as our Father. And the implications of that are endless. The freedom that comes from being a part of God's family. As we take communion tonight, let us remember that truth. It's in your name that we pray.